On this episode of MSU Today, we're going to be talking about agricultural innovation, and that's an area in which Michigan State University is a worldwide powerhouse. And the reason we're going to talk about that today is our population in the world is continuing to grow, and climate change is continuing to impact the crops that we need to feed the growing population. So we're going to discuss that with three distinguished Michigan State University professors today. We have Felicia Wu, who's a John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor with us, and we have Bruno Basso and Federica Brandizzi, and they're both MSU Foundation professors, and uh, Bruno is also a John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor, and Federica is a Distinguished Professor. So welcome to all of you, and I guess let me start with you, Felicia. Just give us, in your own words, a little bit of your background and what your research interests are, particularly in this area. I'd be happy to, Russ. Thank you. I work at the nexus of agriculture, food safety and security, and public health. So much of my work has to do specifically in the space of food safety risk assessment. How do the different food contaminants that might end up in our food affect population health? I do this work at the level of the United States and also around the world, and I'm currently working with the World Health Organization on several of these projects. And Bruno, how about you, sir? Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to talk to you today, Russ. I am an agroecosystem uh, scientist. Um, I also work on ambitious and challenging goals of uh, long-term sustainability of agricultural system. And just to define a little bit this magic word about sustainability, we look at um, maintaining profitability in, you know, in the farming system and the food system while reducing environmental impact. And um, I use um, a lot of tools and technologies, mainly satellite imagery, drone technologies, but also simulation models to be able to scale. Not all all the places have the fortune to have Michigan State or be able to do experiments on site. So one of the goals is to help people um, basically benefit from the innovation we generate here and be able to scale across uh, the globe. And Federica. Well, thanks for having me here. I'm very excited. Um, so I'm a, a plant molecular and cell biologist. So we look at uh, plants from the lens of a microscope and we're trying to modify them with the idea to make them more productive and so that they can produce more food, uh, have less input for growing, but also produce um, precursors for energy, for bioproducts, for the bioenergy, with the idea to generate the basics for a sustainable agriculture moving forward. And Federica, let me stay with you. Um, Sort of frame this issue from your perspective. How serious is this global food challenge? Well, it is, and um, it's really... um, is affecting us, although we may not see in our daily lives, uh, at least because we we are used to a meal in front of us. Uh, the truth of the matter is that when we go to the supermarkets and we start seeing the prices going up, there is obvious a, um, a wake-up call from many angles, right? The angles that can impact the big science and trying to be big thinkers and move things forward. And then there is the general public that actually has to respond to to the growing needs. And there are the, you know, uh, first populations and then there are populations that are not as fortunate to live in uh, powerhouse countries. And so we had to have really a global approach. And it's beautiful to be here 
with Felicia and with Bruno because really you can see how many angles can be tackled to to you know face and overcome this global challenge. And probably all those angles need to be tackled, correct? Absolutely. And I will want my colleagues to speak, but um, I also want uh, the public to hear that there are problems that we can solve on this planet, and we also problems that we're thinking about exploring beyond this planet. So research in our lab is expanding to reach new frontiers. We just sent seeds around the moon to see how they can respond to space flight. So, you know, I think the message here is we can have so many angles and we must have the responsibility to start looking very seriously at this problem. And Bruno, from your perspective, frame the issue. Well, the issues is, uh, of course, very serious, both, uh, you know, the balance between quantity of food, um, health of food. We have one of the uh, world-renowned experts. She'll talk about that. But uh, the connection, you know, between the environment. And so this, I guess, is probably known around that we trying to term this one health, you know, the health of the food, the health of the environment and the health of the community. So when you bring all of them together, then it's a serious challenge because we it, you just have to look across different lens, like Federica said. It's one thing is for us living in a very privileged, you know, sets of uh, conditions. And one thing um, I had, you know, the, the, the pleasure and, and I, can, I guess some level of sadness to see people not be able to eat. I work closely with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. And so the problems are very different. Here it's more about how can we produce while maintaining, uh, you know, the environmental integrity, how push for a more circular uh, bioeconomy, be able to recycle more and be able to produce energy on site and all these uh, very valuable things versus on the other side of, uh, I guess, the ocean or uh, Southeast Asia or Africa, uh, the framing is very different. That's much more about how can we increase yields uh, to be able to boost uh, you know, productivity and be able to feed the growing population because the growing population is actually occurring right there, not necessarily in uh, high-income countries. Uh, Felicia Wu, what's your perspective on our global food challenge well, to add to what Bruno and Federica have mentioned, it's generally projected that we will have about 10 billion people on Earth in the year 2050. And um, Bruno and Federica brought up the points that there are definitely food security concerns, but there's also some potentially good news. And so I want to talk about it from the perspective of both food security and food safety. From the food security standpoint, thinking in terms of climate change and a growing population, the good news, so to speak, is that typically when we think about producing different types of crops like grains versus vegetables, oftentimes in the U.S. we think about producing one crop cycle per year. For example, you plant your corn in the spring and then you harvest it in the fall. We're growing corn or maize all over the world now. And now there are some projections that say that with a warming climate, you can actually fit in two cycles 
per year instead of just one cycle. Of course, then we need to think about soil health and things like that. But there is the possibility that in certain parts of the world, there will be a long enough climate that will allow for more than one or more than two cycles of certain types of food to be produced. That's on the positive side. On the potentially risky side of that, well, the combination of high heat and drought in some cases, heavy rainfall in others, can jeopardize food production. And then there's also the food safety angle to consider. So I work in a variety of different uh, food contaminants, and it's an unfortunate truth that many of our foodborne viruses, like norovirus, bacteria such as E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter, listeria, and fungi that produce mycotoxins like aflatoxin that are produced by Aspergillus flavus and Parasiticus, they all tend to favor warmer climates. So recently we had done a study saying, well, how much is aflatoxin likely to spread in U.S. corn in the years 2031 to 2040? What we found is that we're, right now it's mostly a problem in southern states, but it is going to spread to the southern corn belt. And then in future years, it could spread to the northern corn belt. And that could really jeopardize our food safety and also our food supply. And it would probably help if we didn't waste as much food as we do, right? That's a whole other issue. Oh, that's for sure. I mean, food waste, if, if it were to be packaged as a country, it'll be the third most emitting country. Oh. So f food waste is a very, very serious issue. So, Felicia, I'll stay with you on this one. Is there a, just a current project you and your team are working on that, that you'd like to highlight in this area? Well, there's several different yeah. ones, so it's hard to choose just one. Or well, a couple, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. One of the projects that we're looking at, and so we have two different grants on this right now, has to do with a problem of heavy metals taken up by crops grown in U.S. soil. In two, in 2021, there was a U.S. congressional report that came out where people had pulled jars of baby food from very well-known companies off grocery store shelves and then tested them for arsenic, cadmium, lead, and mercury and found startlingly high levels, much higher than the levels that EPA allows in drinking water. The problem is that our Food and Drug Administration has not yet set any what are called action levels for these heavy metals in our food supply, but that they were ending up in infant food was a huge source of concern because what are the impacts on the child's brain development, on their bodily development? And so we have projects right now to assess the risk, like what what is, what are people in the American population being exposed to in terms of our rice consumption, spinach consumption, potatoes, wheat, barley, and one other crop I'm not able to think of it right now. But there's many different crops that we produce that are contaminated by arsenic, cadmium, lead, and mercury. So how much are we being exposed to by different age groups? And then how can we get rid of it in our soil so that our spinach and our rice, for example, are not taking up as much of these heavy metals? And Bruno, how about a project or two that you'd like to talk about? Yes, um, I, I have uh, the privilege to lead a very large lab, so the projects that we manage are several. They all have, again, this common goal of sustainability, um, especially, you know, working in the U.S., there's a, a strong demand by the farmers to be able to say, if this is a technology that I need to adopt to make a difference on the environment, that needs to be profitable. And that's a mentality that I guess we may need to respect in a sense because the farmers are the one bearing the risk. You know, you and I, Russ, if we give a suggestion, we have zero risk in giving that.
but the farmer is implementing it. At the same time, they are no longer justified to use inappropriate, you know, use of inputs or, you know, products that are just not ideal for their conditions because science has shown that uh, the luxury application, you know, the heavy application of both fertilizer or agrochemicals, it's not necessary. So you got to play that game or be able to um, consider if you really want to be accepted by the community and be able to make an impact, which is one of the driver, obviously, or any scientist is to see the research, research applied. But um, at the same time, the environmental impact is critical because it just doesn't come from you know a bunch of scientists that are too often are thought as, oh, yeah, these are the extremists or the environmentalists, but rather the, the, the consumers. You know, what Felicia just mentioned about, who would like to hear that, you know, again in the next few years. So we need to be able to inform the public about this sorts of condition. And so the community, to me, talking to several economists, are basically driving the n new sets of policies because they are demanding much safer food. They are demanding that plants will be used as they do for living, pulling CO2 from the atmosphere, retaining carbon in, in the soil. And so that's... Uh, just something that people may not think about it, but there is a consumer perspective uh, that demands gr much greater environmental sustainability. But again, at, at the other side, we should not forget about how we, we consider the risk. So ultimately, most of the projects that I work on quantify the risk, both on the environmental impact and sustainability from farmers. And we can only do that, not just by running small experiments, which can only be relevant in, in small areas, which, but rather integrating satellite technologies and crop simulation models. So once these models have been highly tested and calibrated, then you can transfer the knowledge and the technology to other farmers beyond where we do the experiments. Otherwise, it's a very limited uh, sets of applications. Interesting. And Federico, what's, what excites you that you're working on to address this global food challenge? Well, I, I mentioned our flight to space is really something that is driving the lab along at the moment. We're so cool. very, very excited about it. But staying grounded on Earth, um, something I would like <laughs> to mention is um, the fact that I'm fortunate to work um, as a science director for the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center, whose theme is the sustainable production of biofuels and bioproducts from um, essentially from a, a number of inputs, but mainly uh, plants as feedstocks. And so the idea that we're trying, or the grand challenge that the center is trying to address is to produce um, plants that are fortified in a way that they can uh, produce more biomass and high-quality biomass for subsequent um, uh, processing and production of biofuels and bioproducts. And the reason why I want to bring this up is that, um, as Bruno was mentioning, the theme is sustainability. So we had to make sure that uh, we can produce uh, feedstock for the bioenergy, for the sustainable bio 
bio energy that doesn't come at the cost of production of food. So um, is, there is this really uh, tension, if you wish, or balance between food production and production of biomass that can be used for biofuels and bioproducts. So in the center, we're trying to explore, thanks to lots of the help from people like uh, Bruno, uh, in identifying lands can, that can be used specifically for the biofuels um, so that there is not uh, competition with food. But also in my lab, more specifically, we are interested in understanding how we can edit, how we can change plants so that we don't touch the food, we don't limit the food production, but we really um, enhance the vegetative biomass of plants so that they can become bigger, still produce a lot of seeds, which is ultimately is what usually is demanded, especially in green species, and uh, really have plants that is need less input for production, so they don't need many chemicals that could be harmful, as we hearing from uh, Felicia when there is input especially when not managed very well they can have toxic effect and also limited input like water or nutrients because if those can be limiting and ultimately affect plant productivity so we're looking at uh, several aspects of plants that revolve around modifying them editing them for really enhanced production. And let me ask the three of you, maybe Bruno, you start this time. As you pursue these projects and we all collectively pursue this challenge, do you see some particular both challenges and opportunities along the way? Yes, like anything, you know, there are things that really excite us about, you know, like what Federica just describes, you know, improvement of genetics and the level of technology that Felicia develops or even my own, you know, simulation systems. Um, I guess one of the biggest challenges is also to be able to see the technology developed at, uh, at a pace that doesn't take long time to be implemented. Uh, whether if it's a new cultivar, it takes several years before it can be commercialized and adopt. We don't have that time frame anymore. So we have about a little less than seven years at this current rate of emission before we reach 1.5 degrees warming and about 24 years until we reach 2 degrees warming with the projection of you know, detrimental impact on the extreme events of deluge and high temperatures and all those things. At the same time, you know, when you shift from challenges, genetics has shown along with agronomic practices and you know, digital tools that we've been seeing, at least in the U.S. Midwest, yield increase constantly every single year. So people made, you know, the common people may puzzle, well, climate change is, you know, is a threat, but why yield, uh, you know, is increasing. The problem is that this technology will continue to be developed, but sometimes disruptive events, you know, may not, you know, allow to, to be able to do that. And not all the places have the technology that we develop, you know, in high-income countries. And so one of the example, you know, Africa just cannot use, you know, improved genetics from point of view, you know, the genetically modified organisms or both, the, you know, the cost, the seeds are sterile, you can't replant the same seeds as they normally do. Their approach, unfortunately, leads to very small, you know, uh, yield at the end of the year, limited versus what we can get through the technology. So 
the challenge is democratizing as much as possible. And, and a lot of the big companies are getting in that. They are realizing, because again, back on the pressure from the communities that, that needs to be done. And now, weather is because of decarbonizing the economy. So there is big investment from the food system companies or even you know the oil companies wanting to be more sustainable. So we all converging towards something, but that's a, not an easy ride. It's it's very rocky because of you know the plus and minus that we talk about, the adoption, the complexity. And then the last thing to say is that people always put a little bit of the profit too quickly. And so sometimes short-sighted decisions or, or uh, they just don't allow to see the longer term you know, evaluation. And so rewarding the investors for short-term revenue, it's a strategy that is no longer going to work and in fact is changing. Ethical finances is getting very much involved. If you want to invest today, you'll be asked whether you want to invest in sustainable financing, you know, versus company that, that are sustainable versus others. So slowly, that's the optimism that, that I bring in, but it's, it's, uh, it's not an easy ride. Felicia, how about you? Some challenges and opportunities as we confront the global food challenge. Well, to build on what Bruno was just discussing, I see a large area of technology that could be, has a lot of promise, but also a number of challenges, and that's the large space of biotechnology, agricultural biotechnology specifically. So we have been planting transgenic or genetically modified crops in the United States and around the world since 1996. Um, most of the varieties that we've been planting have benefits to farmers. They might have insect pest resistance or they're resistant to a particular herbicide such as glyphosate. We have them for corn, for soybean, for cotton, for a variety of other crops. Um, but not all countries around the world have been as accepting of biotechnology in the space of agriculture as the United States, Brazil, and Argentina have, for example. And now, of course, we have new developments in biotechnology through gene editing, which has received a lot of news over the last decade. In fact, Jennifer Doutna and Emmanuel Charpentier won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry several years ago for their work in CRISPR-Cas9, a gene editing method. Uh, this version of gene editing has actually, th this is how bacteria have evolved an immune system against the viruses that attempt to um, that, that attempt to infect them, which is basically just chopping up their DNA. And we've managed to harness this type of technology in order to edit crops and to edit other organisms. We are, in fact, growing two varieties of gene-edited crops in the United States right now. They're not specific to health or to um, necessarily as benefits to farmers, but one is the anti-browning mushroom so that your mushrooms don't become brown as quickly in the grocery store or in, at your home. And the other is a variety of corn that produces more wax for the purposes of industry, industrial needs for wax. But gene editing can also be used in the future to create crops that are not only resistant to pests, but might have higher concentrations of nutrients, might be resistant to high temperatures or to drought or to heavy rainfall, or they might be able to resist being planted, for example, in very in soil that has a high concentration of salt. So there are many potential opportunities in the area of biotechnology, but again, these have to meet with approval by governments all around the world, and we are not quite at that space yet for a variety of different reasons. It's like a friend of mine says, 
we're asked to believe the science of climate change, but why not biotechnology and genetically modified food? Why why can't we believe that that's safe too? You know, it's an ongoing argument. But Federica, I'll let me ask you then, challenges, opportunities along the way. I think the biggest challenge and opportunity is always to um, keep a focus on responsibility. So we hear, uh, you know, of... Like Felicia saying, gen, gene editing is so promising. But also we hear from Bruno making sure that technology is available. So we have the responsibility, I believe, to make sure that, um, first of all, everybody on this planet has food available. So we really have to make sure that they are, the priorities are always straight. So sometimes we hear about modification of some crops for almost making them some jewels, you know, something specific, like um, extreme, the watermelon that has to be shaped as a cube. Well, there were millions of dollars in investment in that. And then Fair enough, it's very pretty and extremely expensive too, but it's really necessary. So I think we have the responsibility to um, make sure that the basic human rights are protected and that is access to food and clean water, right? So um, with that in mind, I think science now can influence so many sectors. And I think as scientists, we have to make sure that we can keep word to this responsibility and keep really voicing it loud so that it is heard not only in first world countries, but also in countries where really um, intervention is required to make sure that everybody has access to food and clean water. So go ahead, Felicia. If I could add one other area of potential promise, but a lot of challenges, that is lab-grown meat. Something you had mentioned, Federica, brought this up in my mind. There are many potential benefits to producing meat in the lab rather than in our current, well, our, our current livestock and poultry uh, system. For one thing, we'd be dealing with um, it, producing lab-grown meat. In theory, would not involve the killing of any animals. It would involve taking a sample of animal tissue and then subjecting it to a variety of different hormones and different chemicals such that it could produce various different parts of the meat and then adding a scaffold, so to speak, so that it could have the texture, say, of a hamburger or of a steak, etc. And there are this attempting to produce lab grown meat has gone on now for about two decades. The problem is that right now to produce one fully sized hamburger costs $330,000 because of the (laughs) sheer technological difficulties. But if there is a way that we could improve the economies of scale and improve the technologies, then there would be benefits in terms of animal welfare, in terms of ethics, in terms of reduced climate change emissions because uh, producing livestock and poultry does require a fair amount, uh, does um, emit a fairly large number of greenhouse gases, then this could be a win-win scenario. Right now, the costs are not there, but the potential promise is large. And I guess I asked you about challenges and opportunities. The ultimate opportunity is that we feed the growing population self-safe, healthy food and water. Yeah, so... um, let me just ask you, is, are, are you optimistic? Can we meet this global food challenge, Federica? 
With with lot of work, yes, but it has to be a concerted effort, and I feel that we should put um, again the human aspect up front, and then maybe uh, finances later. So I I think that again, as I love this panel discussion that we have because really highlights that we can tackle ch the same challenge from different points of view. And I think that should be the underlying sentiment in addressing the global food challenge. But I also think that we have to set the right priorities on what do we tackle first and um, at what cost. And it should never be human cost. Bruno? Of course. I'm a very optimistic, uh, you know, uh, as a scientist in general, we'll always, you know, discuss about, you know, you got to be careful. And in, even, you know, when we develop new technologies, there are always uh, sides that uh, need to be carefully considered. But I feel because of uh, the science advancement uh, is going to be uh, critical. But I've mentioned throughout my talk the fact that uh, the new generation is so much on board on ba basically be able to do their parts and um, I recently actually uh, gave, uh, gave a talk here at the MSU convocation in front of 11,000 uh, uh, students and it was challenging for me to basically send this message which is very similar to what you're asking. I think we, our generation despite the fact that that has done so much for them you know between the DNA you know the internet and all that we still have to I guess be apologetic in, in the face of the next generation because we prioritize growth versus basically sustainable development. And that is changing. We're reala realizing, all the people of my generation are realizing that. And because of the sensitivity of the new generation and even the basically the people controlling some of the finances have realized uh, that that's necessary to change the mod modus operandi and so that um, gives me hope between the science and again the fact that uh, it is mandatory uh, to be able to be m more sustainable and like Federica said we can do such a great job over here the problem is always in less fortunate uh, places and and I think we're all going in that direction you probably know this Ross Michigan State has so many projects and involvement in, in low-income countries. And so we, we hope and we see uh, significant impacts and seeing, you know, differences. And, um, and we need, you know, just a uh, synchronized efforts across the board and, and technologies to be able to make that difference that is required for the next generation. Spartans will. Felicia, I know you must be optimistic, too. You're absolutely right, Russ. I pretty much agree with everything that Bruno and Federica have just said. I am very optimistic. I think back to the philosopher Thomas Malthus in the 1700s, who claimed that the human population is growing exponentially, but food production is growing linearly. So over time, we're not going to be able to feed our global population and human society is just going to collapse. And 
that Malthusian theory has been stated again and again over the last two hundred plus years, and thankfully, it has never come to pass. Human ingenuity has always come up with new ways in order to provide for our society. But as Bruno was pointing out, it's not just about growing, growing, growing. Now we need to think about sustainability. So we really do need to have that as a cornerstone of everything we think about in the space of agriculture, food production, human health, etc. We can't keep Growing forever, <laughs> and um, and I think as Federica had pointed out, some of these problems are the most severe in low-income countries around the world, and we need to think focus our efforts on how we can ensure that the whole global population is able to keep up in terms of food security and food safety for population health. And Felicia, let me ask you what Federica touched on. The fact that you're all here together is one example, but talk about that low barrier for collaboration at MSU, which is really, as you said, what we we need all hands on deck here. I've definitely found this to be the case that MSU is a very collaborative institution. I've been at other institutions before MSU, and it, it was wonderful to be at those places as well. But ever since having arrived at MSU ten years ago, I've just found that people are willing to collaborate, not just in my two departments, but pretty much all over the university. There's a lot of excitement around that. I'm part of multiple different projects across MSU and other institutions, and I think that's one of MSU's greatest strengths: our collaborative nature. Yeah, very much echo what Felicia said. It's it's incredible how collaborative the environment here is. Federica and I work closely in the GLBRC, the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research. Felicia and I have, you know, tackled the, the use of models for climate change impact, whether it was food production or food health, and um, so the, um, this is incredible. I also joined ten years ago. But I did my PhD at Michigan State, so it was uh, a special treat for me to be able to come back. And I knew what I was coming back to. So, Federica. <laughs> well, I can only echo what's been already said, but I would like to also to add that uh, the environment makes people collaborate. And what I'm trying to say here is that Michigan State gives us the tools to meet and work together. Um, I just want to make an example. Uh, there are funds available through um, MSU Innovations that allow us to develop our ideas generated in the lab and bring them to the field. And in this process, um, I get to know people, I get to interact with colleagues, and I get to put ideas together. And I know that I am backed up by my university. And having that institutional support, it makes a world of difference. So I think MSU is establishing this level of collaborative research and, and fostering that. So it's not just about us as people, scientists in general want to collaborate, but it's also providing the means, uh, the structure uh, to make us collaborative. So. Good, good point. If I might ask Federica some questions, I'm fascinated by your work about the seeds in space. So have you um, generated any results from that work? And was the general purpose the idea that someday we humans are going to be in space and we need to know if these seeds will survive? Yes, exactly. So we actually got the seeds back on January 3rd. They came with this huge shipment and then we got this little box uh, full of seeds. But um, we we s s saw them on, on plates and uh, we 
start looking at some very interesting differences. So really space has affected them. And we sent to space uh, not just the unmutagenized backgrounds, so the wild type background. We also sent mutants that uh, have different levels of amino acids. And there is a specific background, specific mutant that has not responded very well to space. This data preliminary, but it's really exciting because the research is then guiding us on which kind of genotype we should send to space with the idea that we have to start thinking about colonizing uh, spa- extraterrestrial spaces and, and making and make them sustainable. And one way to do that is actually to put plants um, on extraterrestrial soil. So we're thinking about that too. How do you define sustainability? I think sustainability is um, a process, a process of making sure that the inputs match the outputs in a circular way. And so um, we can produce what we can eat and we shouldn't go uh, beyond that. That is what makes us sustainable. Uh, that's my point of view, but I'm sure that Felicia and Bruno. You know, well, I mean, it, it is complex, uh, just in the sense that not many people think of sustainability in in the same way. Um, I think, in addition to defining, you know, the the possibility of leaving resources for the next generation, it's um, it's not often packaged like that, but uh, because it has to in, encompass, you know, the profitability. So you have to be profitable to be able to, you know, maintaining this environmental integrity, that's where the complexity comes in, you know, the trade-offs. And so some somewhere that then needs to be a change of mentality that that profitability could come from a different level of whether it's no longer sales, but it could be someone basically supporting the risk or making money in a different way. And, you know, very good example nowadays is the fact that you know, you can sell carbon that you store. So by being more, you know, sustainable in the sense of managing resources well, you could uh, sell this uh, storage that, you know, that stay, the, so- the carbon then stays in the soil to companies that are offsetting, you know, too much um, in, into the atmosphere. So that's becoming much, much more uh, mandatory. And one example of that, which is one thing that hasn't emerged in this conversation, is that the one additional threat is not just obviously the food security and the health, but it's also the lack of uh, the losses of biodiversity. And so there are lots of land uh, in the U.S. that could be designed for enhancing the biodiversity. So basically keeping resources more more intact while making profit in in the sense by making money because you store carbon, you protect the environment. And so, again, sustainability has to, you know, account for the people that managing the land that get rewarded and don't bear the risk all the time, but the one that benefit also uh, because they have a more, uh, you know, better environment and the next generation. So it's not a short-term thinking, but rather a much uh, more complicated and longer term. I would agree with what both Federica said about sustainability being a process and what Bruno introduced about the idea of considering the next generation and generations to come. Sustainability introduces the idea of time, that whether we make decisions as individuals or as companies, as institutions, it's not just about what will 
be best for us in the short term, but how this would affect us five to ten years or even longer down the road. How will this affect our children, our children's children, generations to come? And this way of thinking is already. Part of many cultures in the United States and around the world, this idea that you want to be thinking, say, seven generations from now, and to broaden it beyond. When Bruno brought up the idea of biodiversity, thinking not just of humans but also of our entire global ecosystem, and who knows, as per Frederica's work, maybe even beyond to space. Well, what a treat it's been having all three of you in here to discuss the global food challenge. And let me just ask you, Felicia, I'll stay with you, just some final thoughts on this global food challenge and the agricultural innovation we've been discussing that hopes to address it. I do think that there are a number of food security, food safety, and nutritional challenges in the years to come. But I do have every optimism that we will be able to meet those challenges because of our collective brain power and our hard work in this area. Bruno, yeah, likewise. I think、uh, I would say, yeah, I guess, to the general audience, to trust science. Science doesn't have a second agenda. Uh, climate change poses a real risk. We we can't just think about our backyard, but rather, and often that information is not always known. What happens in other places? So it's a serious threat.、Um, there are people that basically close to a billion people go hungry at night, or have no sand and you know、uh, water that is clean or potable and so on. So those、uh, challenges are just very real, and we all work towards that. But again, because of、um, the innovation that we constantly aim, you know, to produce and often deliver, you know, through、um, MSU innovation technologies or the possibility of packaging these new ideas into something that is uh, uh, basically adoptable, you know, across the globe,、uh, brings me that level of optimism that、uh, I mentioned earlier. Federica, some final thoughts. Well, I'm a scientist, right? So I'm optimistic by nature. I have a hypothesis, I test it, and、um, because also I'm a mom, I want to think about、um, the fact that there is a good future ahead, and I'm contributing to that. And、um, my contribution wouldn't be possible without the collective. Help and input from everybody else in any scale, in any scale, from those kids that go for the recycling to the big corporations that actually stop thinking about the profit and really more about、um, mankind and sustainable future. So I think, like Felicia was saying, you know, humans have been on this planet for quite a long time and they managed to do good and bad, but. I have the feeling that the good will prevail. <laughs> <laughs> Federica Brandizzi, Bruno Basso, Felicia Wu are three extremely distinguished professors at Michigan State University, and thank you all so much for sharing your expertise today. Thank, thank you. you, thank you, so you for、much. having us. And I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.